Hey there, folks. My name is John Duvall. Welcome back to another Truth Factor discussion. We'd like to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us for this live study, or maybe you've chosen to view the study at a later point at your convenience. Either way, we appreciate your interest in these things. It is originally when, when I started Truth Factor, the whole point was to try to factor the truth of God's Word into our daily lives. And so ultimately, as we go through our various book studies, and now we've added topical studies, um, you know, so forth and so on. Our goal is to take the Word of God and make it applicable, find the application of it within our lives. And so if you have any thoughts or comments about anything that we have to say, we'd love to hear from you. Now, as you're watching this live, if you are on our YouTube channel, then go ahead and take a moment and say hello in the chat area connected with YouTube. And that's at Truth Factor Live. If you're watching us on our Facebook page, which is also Truth Factor Live, then there's a comment section connected to this live video. Say hello there. And so we can see you and hear from you. We are also sending a test stream out to Twitter. Our Twitter account is Truth Factor Live also. So you can also communicate with us there. Now, if you would like to send a comment, we would encourage you to do that. Maybe we say something that you don't agree with. Tell us about it. Or maybe you have more information on something we're talking about. Let us know as well. You can also send us emails. Send them to currently questions at Truth Factor Live. You can use that during our course of our study. Or, and that's how you contact us individually. You'll see the names there. John at, Paul at, Tom at, etc. Truthfactor.com. And there's even a way to send us a text message. And you'll see that a number on the screen in the ticker as we continue with our study. All right, so let me go ahead and, ooh, wrong button. There we go. Let's bring in the group. Like I said, just three of us today. So you would think that we could get more accomplished, but look who's here. We are the talkers of the group. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> now, as, as we step into um, our study, of course, of Ecclesiastes, continuing that, we left off last week with verse 12. And just kind of a, as a brief reminder here, and this is kind of a nice little summary of the first 11 verses there. We see the question being presented by Solomon, what profit has a man from all his labor in which uh, he toils under the sun? And then as I gently scroll down, so as not to make anyone dizzy, down to verse number 11, we kind of see the conclusion of that. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will, I'm sorry, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. And so that's a good way of kind of summarizing how he begins this particular book. So what we're going to do is pick up now today with verse 12. And Brian, if you would, let's go ahead and I'm going to have you to read verses 12 to the end of the chapter. And let's go ahead for good measure. It's kind of a part B to this. Throw in, what is it? I think, the first three verses of chapter 2. Ready to go. Uh, reading from the New King... Oh. Go ahead. I'm just getting you ready there. I'm sorry. No, you're uh, good. Okay. Reading, reading from the New King James, verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man, by which they may be exercised. 
I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, look, I have attained greatness. I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Picking up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness. And I said of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom, how to lay hold on, on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. All righty. So let's see here. Wrong button again. Still get this all figured out. So Brian, as we start this particular section here, what would you say would be the primary vanity in this section he's talking yeah. about? So uh, we want to understand that Solomon has introduced the idea that he's going to find the meaning of life by searching out through the things that, that he has the available access to. Being the richest, smartest, most powerful man in the world, uh, most powerful in the sense of at least as much power as a man can have, he had the unique opportunity to do so. So the very first thing he is going to pursue this through is knowledge, is understanding, is wisdom. Um, Solomon, by the way, doesn't really make a strong distinction between wisdom and understanding. We do. We typically say that a man can have a PhD, that makes him understanding, but it doesn't make him wise because he may not know what to do with it. And And I've heard somebody say that wisdom is knowledge that is applied in a good way. Uh, so so there is, uh, generally speaking, the distinction between wisdom and knowledge. Solomon, by the way, has both. Solomon is a scientist. Uh, the scriptures tell us that he wrote treatises on, on animals and books, and, and he's also a man of wisdom. He also has uh, perception into spiritual things. So he has both. And really, he's kind of talking about both when he begins talking about, in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1, that he has pursued through knowledge, the way to find the meaning of life. First and foremost, just by knowing everything, can I can I have or achieve a value of life? And one of the things he makes a point to say is, found out pretty quickly, and he'll come back to this again, by the way, he seems to touch it the chapter two just a little bit as well, uh, verses 12 through 15, uh, 17. He'll say, really the problem is, you can know everything, but it may not fix everything anything um and and you know this is the problem preachers see all the time we, we talk about the idea that hey we know somebody's unhappy somebody's miserable we know what they need to do to get right but they just won't do it you know we can tell them all day you need to you need to walk you know walk in faith not in the flesh you need to straighten your life you need to put away sin and we know what you need to do but we can't make people do it uh, we can't compel people to do it. Um, we can have all the knowledge that there is, and we can't do anything to make things straight. And the way he puts it is, what is crooked? Crooked can't be made straight. You know, you can't you can't change something in somebody's behavior and get it uh, get it fixed just by knowing alone. That person has to will it, or or there are things that even knowing it can't help it. So there's that sense as well. 
So both of these are important points to consider. So ultimately, he says, what does that amount to? Verse 18, that amounts to the idea that if you knew a lot, you're, you're going to be pretty unhappy knowing all this because it's a pretty miserable thing to know what's going to happen to somebody and not be able to do a thing to change it. Tom, you had a thought? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, there's another side to wisdom to think about, and that is using wisdom to apply your wisdom. And and uh, what I actually mean by that is the idea of, you know, it, it, it makes the point in the text there where, where Solomon said, I set my heart to seek and search out wisdom. That's done, bam. <laughs> uh, but but anyways, uh, the point is, the point is, is he, I think Solomon used his knowledge wisely. And, and, and matter of fact, we read about him setting limits. You know, you know, he did things while guiding my heart and those types of observations. So there's something to be said about uh, using wisdom. And one of the things to understand, and Solomon will bring this out later in the book, is uh, uh, wisdom is not bad. We need, we need wisdom. Wisdom is better than folly by miles, you know, you know from that standpoint. And uh, so he uses his wisdom in a good way. But even with that in mind, wisdom and knowledge, it, it's vanity. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, if that's where you're putting your focus, and if you think that's going to save you, by itself, worldly, worldly, it, it, it's vanity. And, and of course, you know, also understand from that, we know wisdom is good biblically. Matter of fact, it, it's the wise person that God wants leading the congregation. You know, it, it's the wise person that God wants teaching others and doing all those kind of things. Wisdom excels folly by a long shot. Uh, but we, uh, uh, but if that's your only pursuit, if you think if you think eight degrees is going to get you closer to God than one, you're wrong. And by, it, wasn't that a problem with Gnosticism? You know, in the first century. So, anyways, uh, yeah, that's good uh, stuff. Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well. Do you base, Ryan, would you say that kind of what Solomon is saying, and I know it's not, but is that old expression, ignorance is bliss? Mm, very interesting. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and it's an interesting idea. And, and I think, and Tom's kind of on the right track here. Solomon isn't so much saying that wisdom's no good. What he's saying is wisdom itself isn't enough. Um, you know, wisdom itself actually just makes a person unhappy. But by the way, we could we could play with this idea and say that it's kind of like faith without works. Um, you know, faith is a great thing. Yeah. Believing in God is a great thing. Yeah. But if it, it without works is dead. Um, and Solomon, in a way, is talking about the idea of wisdom without works. He's talking about the idea of, you know, wisdom for the sake of wisdom's sake. You know, and, and sometimes you meet people that are always learning but never coming to knowledge, meaning they're always drawing in information in spiritual things, but they're actually never putting it to application in their life. And that might be a, a big part of what Solomon is talking about here. I think, in fact, I would say that's probably exactly what Solomon is talking about. A person who is getting wise for the sake of wisdom, and he's looking for the the answer of wisdom within itself. And 
I'll carefully say, even a quasi-spiritualism, I think Paul said it well in, in uh, what, First First Timothy chapter 4, when he says it's a form of godliness that denies the power. Some kind of logic seems spiritual, um, but in the end, it denies the power. Well, the power of godliness is in action. You know, it's in knowledgeable action. It's not just in knowledge, and it's not just in action. It's in knowledgeable action. And so I think that might be an important distinction here. Solomon is talking about the idea of wisdom for wisdom's sake. And a lot of people love wisdom for wisdom's sake. They love the, uh, I would say, the pride of life. Um, I got corrected on that. Tom says it was 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, uh, uh, where Paul makes that statement. And the important idea is wisdom for wisdom's sake is vanity. It's meaningless. It doesn't, it's not in the end going to save you. And who's the best example of that we know? Solomon, who um, became an enemy of God in his life, whether it was you know, we hope it was before Ecclesiastes was written so that he got his life straight, but could have been after. But the point is, his wisdom didn't prevent him from becoming an enemy of God. It was his behavior uh, that should have been trained by his wisdom, and it wasn't. Right, yeah. You know, I, I made a comment to us, and Brian kind of touched on it. You know, there's a difference between having wisdom and being wise. <laughs> you know, I mean, being wise is applying that wisdom. And, well, and, let me, okay. There's, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, and there's a difference between wisdom yeah. and wise. You know, the, the one who is wise applies it. But I, I think, I think it, it's probably be good to note, since we're talking about a book written by Solomon, that there sounds the way at this point he is not talking about the wisdom that is much discussed in the book of Proverbs. Okay. I think what you're saying about this wisdom is, is spot on. But the wisdom in Proverbs seems to be the wisdom that he personifies in such a way that is good, that is from God, that is from above, with the right knowledge, the right understanding, and so forth. Um, i I give you an example. Tell me if you think this would kind of be a good application of this. I have known some individuals who are very, and I'm going to put this in air quotes if you don't mind, religiously minded, Okay. They think a lot about religious things. So, yes, one of the books that they read is the Bible. But they, all, but they also consult other external writings, ideas of religions outside of the scope of the Hebrews and the Christians. And they, they, they begin to get into religion in such a way that it's a much broader expanse that the Bible no longer is the authority, but just one authority of things. Um, I think that individual is kind of what we're talking about in one particular example, where you pursue a knowledge and wisdom and understanding that isn't the wisdom that's found in the Word of God. You know, therefore, it's not profitable, I guess, to you. Yeah, and but, John, that, you know. that can lead to confusion or confusion. That can lead to confusion. Confusing it, conclusions. It, How it, about that? Yeah, you know, I... I, I've been doing a lot of uh, teaching on evidences for the last four or five years, you know, in, in our congregation. And, and I came across, I, I don't remember where this was, but, but I came across a, on a website dealing with atheism and stuff like that, where the observation was made is what makes, what di difference, differentiates the, the atheist in many cases from the believer is the fact that atheists typically have a lot of knowledge, a lot of a lot of worldly wisdom, and um, and they let that worldly wisdom 
explain God away. And, and they actually say that that's the number one factor that's different. You know, this was an article that was talking about being brought up in a specific yeah. environment and so on. And, and we know all those things can affect it. But but if you just envelop yourself with worldly wisdom and you just keep cramming things in, this source, that source, that source, there's more than likely going to be confusion unless you know how to filter through it. Yeah. So kind of take that to heart. You may be interested in a lot of different things, and we all can relate to that. But make certain that that interest doesn't dominate your life so much that you devote your life to finding out something that is not going to transcend, if you would, beyond your death. Yeah. You know, make sure that what you're focused on, you keep it in proper perspective of, okay, this is good. This is fun to know. I think I need to know this, but there are other things that are more important that will be relevant after I die. This stuff will go on to someone else and probably won't be remembered at some point. So, right. Yeah. And, and by the way, another thing to think about from the wisdom knowledge standpoint is sometimes there's an order that needs to develop too. You know, you need to be grounded in certain things before you start looking at something else. Uh, and I think that's important to understand. You know, I, you know, I, you, as an as an illustration, and I think uh, this applies to all of us. You know, I can look at a denominational book on a subject and learn from it and say that that's a great book as far as some of the material that is in there. But I know how to filter out uh, what. Yeah. I'm going to read, you know, as an example, evidences, uh, uh, Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict and so on. Uh, his material's great until you get to his last chapter that deals with the, you know, deals with the plan of salvation or, or, or that kind. And I, and I know to filter that out, but I can't hand that book to a babe in Christ who has not been grounded in the truth of God's word on the plan of salvation and the church and everything like that, and hope that they just ignore that part of it, that they filter that out. Yeah, yeah. Good point. All right, Brian, did, did you talk any about verses one through three? Not yet, not yet. Okay. So I think right. that there's a there's a change of theme. So knowledge didn't work out. You know, uh, just, to, just to pursue knowledge in and of itself didn't work out. So let's go the other direction. Uh, maybe Solomon says, what if I just live for pleasure? Um, you know, there's a, there is a philosophy that pursues that, the philosophy called hedonism, which is to say, I just live to do the things that make me feel good. So what does he pursue then? He says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to explore what feels good. You know, I'm going to do the things that, uh, uh, that, uh, verse three, I'm going to gratify my flesh. I'm going to gratify it with wine. Uh, you know, the, the, the things, uh, 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 all the things that I'm going to want to do and enjoy myself and have pleasure. Um, I, I'm going to pursue those things that are going to make me feel good. Now, ironically, I think that's the one that's the easiest to see. Oh, that's a bad idea. Um, you know, and, and of course, where does that manifestation, this idea of a pursuit of pleasure come in to reveal itself? Well, uh, consequences, you know, a person that, loves wine how many of the proverbs are going to tell us and these are proverbs written by solomon how many of the proverbs are going to tell us hey you know the guy that loves wine he he doesn't have any wealth he's in poverty he doesn't you know his body is destroyed i mean there's all these consequences that are absolutely clear indicators this is not what life's about 
Um, sexual immorality. The first part of the book of Proverbs is uh, a, a Solomon as a father warning his son. And what's the number one warning? Stay away from loose women. You know, that would be uh, uh, maybe Brian's way of putting it. But the 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 dangers of, of sexual uh, uh, promiscuity and this, again, searching life for pleasure. I think this is the easy one for him. He says, eh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to pleasure. Oh, that's no good. You know, that, that didn't take very long for him to figure out. That's no good. But what I think is ironic is I think some ways that is the thing we're fighting the most in our culture today is a world that is obsessed with pleasure. Um, with if it feels right, it is right. In fact, we've defined morality that way. Hey, it seems good to me. It feels right. How can something that feels right be wrong? Uh, you know, up here in Oregon, and of course, I think a lot of the states, maybe both of you, in fact, are in this circumstance, we've legalized all sorts of drugs um, in our pursuit of hedonism. Hedonism is a religion here, you know, in, in a in a in specific way. It's the thing that people love and pursue. And, you know, it's it's remarkable how destructive that is. We have an incredible homeless uh, problem here up in the Portland area. And you can tie it straight to hedonism, people that are living for the flesh. Uh, somebody sent me an interview the other day of a woman that was homeless on the street. She was being interviewed and they said, what, you know, what will you tell us about homelessness? She says, oh, it's here in Oregon. It's great. She says, I get up in the morning and I have my free meal and then I go get high. And then I go to lunch and I have that meal and I go get high. And then I have dinner. And it was it was incredible because here she was. Uh, she had devoted her life to hedonism. She had no teeth left. Uh, you know, her health was deteriorating. She looked like she was 100 years old. She was probably in her 40s or 50s, you know, probably my age. Um, and it was just incredible that here was the here was the worshiper of hedonism and the complete drain that they had given to themselves in that circumstance. So Solomon doesn't take very long to say, whoa, pleasure? That's not so smart. That's not a good meaning of life point because that's actually destructive. Now, he's going to come back later and tell us it's good to enjoy things. But, of course, he's going to make that very clear. It's good to enjoy things with, with wisdom or with understanding as to the consequences of enjoying things. He'll tell us that at the end of the book. He'll say, hey, you know, you know, enjoy things. But remember, there's an accountability for everything. And, of course, he's talking about the ultimate accountability, but he could even be talking about life accountability as yeah. well. So there's a, a, there's a good thing. Um, and, and, you know, and, and one of our commenters in our uh, chat here in YouTube makes that point, Andy Walter. He says, well, pleasure isn't bad of itself. And he's right. You know, sexual... Uh, um, you know, he he kind of makes the point about uh, um, the things he finds it. He makes a point to say that sexual immorality is not pleasurable. You know, well, it does have terrible consequences. Um, he says, I find pleasure and find pleasure in programming. You know, Andy, uh, my son's a programmer, so he he might agree with you. Um, it's wonderful. In fact, Solomon's going to say, really, one of the best things you can do in life is find joy or find pleasure in the things that you have to do. And you'll talk about work and about simplicity. Um, but the pursuit of pleasure is what's dangerous. And that's the interesting thing. It's it's wonderful when we're happy. But when happiness becomes the goal of our life, we actually don't find it. It's a fascinating, uh, fascinating truth that when we make happiness our goal, we absolutely won't find it. So, Andy, I do appreciate that comment. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, there's... There's so much to be said about the concept of, of uh, pleasure. Uh, you you made the point that you know uh, pleasure is all around us. I, we live in a pleasure-driven society, and just just let me give you an illustration. I just did I just did a search real quick. 
cheapest Super Bowl ticket is over three thousand dollars. You know, uh, I mean, and how many people? You know, the stadium's going to be sold out. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, uh, how about the large screen TV sales this week? <laughs> you know, I mean, careful. I mean, you're ca- careful. I just got one a couple weeks back. It's well, not the eighty not inch, but yeah, yeah, you're excused, but it's not this. <laughs> but 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 uh, but the point is, you know, that's just an illustration of how how driven by pleasure we are as a society. The amount of money that people are willing to spend to go to Disneyland here on an off day is is a hundred dollars or more. And when I say off day, you know, Disney's figured out we can charge $150 on a busy day and still sell the park out. And, and, uh, and, 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 you know, those are, those are, you might call them extreme examples, but that shows how important pleasure is to people in society. And then, of course, you, you just look at how driven we are by pleasure when you just look in our homes, you know, um, television, Computers, the uh, YouTube, our our our, our iPhones, our, our game machines, the video con- game consoles, just everything in our society is about entertaining ourselves. And 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 then when a preacher, the preacher goes forty six minutes, he's criticized because he took too long. Uh, and, uh, by the way, I don't have that problem, and I'm thankful. But, yeah, I don't but, uh, know if you've but, ever preached a sermon no, no, under 47 no, let, minutes. Let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. I, I do preach more than 46 minutes. Yeah. I don't have the problem of the complaints. Uh, yeah. But but um, but I mean that's that's where we are as a society. And, and and you know and of course you know when you talk about pleasure, you can put that into two categories. You've got the sinful pleasures, which Brian has touched on, but you've also got things that are not sinful within themselves but they can become sinful. Uh, Luke 8, 14, the parable of the sower, the thorny ground, the cares of this world, or uh, the pleasures of this world choke out the word of God. And then I've, I've also got a, a proverb here, and then I'll let you have it, John. Proverbs 21, 17, he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. There's something to be said about that. Now, now, by the way, let's kind of throw on top of what Tom said. Solomon's, we haven't read this, we're not going to read this today, but in chapter 3, Solomon's going to tell us all of these things have a place, though. Um, whether it's pleasure, wisdom, uh, we haven't talked yet about uh, uh, possessions or work. They're all things that have a place in appropriateness. And frankly, we could probably say just about anything, pleasure, you know, pleasure or work, they all have a time and a place. Everything has a time. Everything has a season. Uh, it's appropriate. You know, um, we could talk about something like sexuality and say within marriage, it's it's appropriate. Outside of marriage, it's deadly. We can talk about, um, you know, the pursuit of food, the pursuit of possession. They all have their place. Whenever they be, are taken out of that place, they become detrimental to our spiritual uh, well-being. Uh, uh, things have place and purpose. And he'll tell us that in the next chapter. He'll say everything has a place, but... None of those things are the meaning themselves. The so over 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 the last several years, I've been doing more 
research, if you would, into um, ADHD. Okay. Have you ever heard kind of what's at the basis of that? What kind of causes ADHD? So, um, the, the cotton, and this is a very dumbed down explanation because I'm dumb and I have to bring it down to understand it. But fundamentally what happens is under, under normal functioning processes, there are things you do that trigger in endorphins, dopamine, stuff like that in your brain. And that's the pleasure center and makes you happy. You know, some you can play, you go out, watch a baseball game or you go to a classical concert or you spend time with your loved one or you go, you know, something you enjoy doing, you know, so it produces these, um, the dopamine and the, and the, um, well, the endorphins. It, it produces those within your mindset. You feel good. All right. So as one person explained at one time, if your body doesn't function properly, then you're always looking for that feel good moment. Okay. And so many times with ADHD, children who have it severe, they're always bouncing around. They're always hopping around. They're trying to find subconsciously trying to find something to bring that feel good. Okay. So there are things in, you know, our bodies are designed by God that this feel good inside internally is designed to be there. Okay. It, it is intended to be triggered. Um, and, and sometimes people don't. And, and so once you understand it, you kind of say, okay, I need to figure out what I can do to help kind of do that. The challenge that comes in, because some generations of thought pleasures were bad. The, the, the challenge comes in is making sure that in our attempts, and you've already said all this, in our attempts to find this happiness, that we don't get into realms that God has expressly forbidden. You know, a- Andy talked about programming. There's nothing wrong with getting a, a feeling good from programming, feeling good from accomplishing something, you know, getting, you know, feeling good from doing something. There's nothing wrong with that. But when it becomes the pursuit of our life, as has already been well stated, when it becomes the drive within our life, and that's all that we're focused on, then even something that in and of itself may not be wrong can become a great anchor and to weight us, weight us down. It's, it's that pursuit that ultimately is, is vain. Now that was interesting. If you've never looked into what causes that, or at least what they're saying causes it, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know? So anyway, good point yeah, yeah, from y'all. Yeah, at, mm-hmm. you know, great thoughts here. You know, uh, going back to our text in verse two, I think it's interesting. And this is Ecclesiastes two, two. I said of laughter, madness and of mirth, what does it accomplish? You know, you know, think about laughter. I, I mean, I would rather go to a funny movie or watch something funny than to watch something that's, you know, scary or or, or whatever like that. You know, uh, and and a lot of people want to use laughter as a as an escape from reality. But I want you to understand something about laughter in particular. But I think it applies to pleasure in gen in general. And that this goes back to these endorphins and so on like that. You know, the bottom line is you can immerse yourself in whatever it is that gives you the pleasure and try to hide your problems. But the bottom line is, is when you get done, the problem is still there. You have not solved the problem. You haven't made it go, go away. And many times, because you've set it aside, it's gotten worse. So that's something we need to think about. That is the folly of laughter, the, the folly of the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of pleasure. 
uh, it does not solve what needs to be taken care of, the seriousness yeah. of life, the seriousness of your soul from that standpoint. And by the way, that's why we don't need to turn our church into an entertainment venue. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, it, it, you know, you talk about a church is a place for sin sick souls. I agree with that. But how are you going to heal a sin sick soul? Are you going to heal them with comedy or are you going to heal them with the medicine of the word of God? The, the true medicine, you know, yeah. letting you know, you know what, you're wrong. You need to repent. You know, you need to repent of this thing that you're engaging in. Uh, that's where you're going to learn. And it's going to it might be painful. But yeah. Nevertheless, so that's the folly of laughter. Okay, let's see, Brian. You think we got time to go to the next section there? I do. I don't think we'll get through the third section, perhaps, but uh, we certainly, I think, can get through uh, the talk about verses four through seventeen. Let's talk about possessions. Yeah, let's work with that for a minute, um, Tom. If you would, I'm going to kind of break this in two sections, but I'm going to have you read the whole section. But go ahead and start and take. Verses 4 through 8, if you would. Second, let me get my Bible up here. Okay. Um, I made my works great. I built my houses, or I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pots from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and provinces. And I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So it looks like, Tom, just as a brief overview, Solomon here has given a nice little summary of all his works. You know, I made my works great. And then he begins and talks about everything he built, planted. I mean, just the whole nine yards, all the way from gathering silver and gold, special treasures, and so forth. All right. And so then here in a minute, we're going to kind of look at kind of expounding on that and then his conclusion of having done all this. But do you, I'm sorry, do you have any thoughts on that before I have you do go ahead and read nine through verse 17 there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I love nature and I know, you know, that's one of the things he talks about in this particular section here. You know, I made for myself gardens and orchards, you know, I, I enjoy the beauties the beauties of this world and you might say you might say that uh making my environment as comfortable and pleasant and beautiful as it can possibly be but again that's not going to hide or that's not going to eliminate the things that you need to take care of where life is concerned so i think that that was kind of one of the points that that he dealt with that and and, and he tried he tried pleasures to an extreme, if you will, or to the ex to the excess. You know, when he talked about acquiring, you know, our male and female servants, um, uh, animals, animals, more animals than I can uh, count, uh, gold and silver, 
special treasures from all over the world. I enjoyed the exotic things would be a way to describe that. And he goes on, and I, I like the verse number eight, you know, uh, I acquired male and female singers, musical instruments. Uh, I went to the theater. Uh, I, uh, I, 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 was, I was being entertained with the highest quality entertainment there is. Uh, but again, you know, that fits under the, uh, that fits under the category of, of uh, pleasure and those types of things. And, and again, the, the answer is if that's where you're putting your pursuit of life, it is vanity. Yeah. All right. We'll go ahead and continue now as he, as he, verses nine and following, and Solomon continues here. Okay. How far do you want me to go? To uh, verse 17. Okay. To verse 17. Okay. Verse number nine. Um, so I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. And I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why then was I the more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does the wise man die? As the fool. Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. All righty. Well, Tom, go back to verse nine. What do you? Let's kind of get into a couple of things here within this particular section here. And uh, Brian, if you have any thoughts, you can jump in with that as well. Okay, you know, you know. So going back to verse nine, you know, uh, uh, he makes the point: I became great and excelled. And, and you know, understanding that, you know, you know, Solomon was somebody; he had everything from God. You know, he was given everything from God. And I think what he's saying there is, is I used it to the very best of my ability. You know, uh, you know, I, I think he makes the point there in verse, I wisdom remained in me. You know, and I think that's a point I made, you know, a little bit earlier in, in thinking about these things. You know, he, he wasn't just, he wasn't just throwing caution to the wind. You know, uh, you know, I mean, you know, uh, a lot of people today when, when they pursue pleasure and so on, they literally are not thinking about the consequences. And even if they know what the consequences are, they don't care. You know, Solomon, Solomon was observing everything that was happening and he was using wisdom. More than likely, he was, if you'll use part of the term, he was probably journaling. You know, he was probably writing down what he was doing because uh, uh, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, we have Solomon, we have Proverbs. 
you know, so so he, he's observing these things. He's taking notes. You know, he knows what's going on. Um, and but at the same time, whatever whatever I was able to do, I didn't keep it from me. He goes on. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure, and from my heart rejoiced. My heart rejoiced in my labor, and this was the reward. And so he's saying that I did. Think, I worked hard. I worked hard to accomplish what I needed to. But then again, when it was all done, you look back and say, emptiness. And that kind of takes you through the verse number 11, and then, then he just goes on from there. Uh, I considered wisdom and madness and folly. Uh, uh, you know, what more can somebody do than to succeed the king? And then he goes back to, you know what? It's only what's been done before. Yeah. You, know, you, you, you may have made a you may have made a better car. Still a car, you know. You know from that standpoint, it's still going to break down eventually. And, and by the way, somebody's going to come along and make a better car later, or or a better mode of transportation. So those are just some things going up to that point. And and okay. going back into verse thirteen, which I said, wisdom excels falling as light excels dark. You know, don't think that we're Saying wisdom's a bad thing. You, 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 you avoid wisdom to your fate, to your folly, to to your destruction. I mean, uh, if if you ignore wisdom, you know, rest assured, uh, uh, that's a way to bring you down. Well, let me ask. Okay, so a quick question then, and Brian, we'll we'll see what your thoughts on this too. What Tom is talking about there in verse. 13 in that area there does it sound like something is it oversimplification to say that solomon is showing the difference between wise decision versus foolish decisions you know not so much wisdom as we think of proverbs and everything but and and even the the great knowledge and wealth which it could be very part of it but the sheer fact he compares with folly yeah i I definitely think that that's the point he's making john you know uh, you know i mean um, uh, we and and the Bible is so clear on that. I mean, when you get to the New Testament, I mean, how much does the New Testament talk about being wise, you know, and uh, those types of things? So, but, Brian, you have anything to say on this? Yeah, you know, it's it's a real neat point. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. Go ahead. No, I'm pointing at you on the screen, but it does no good. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it made me think I was in trouble. Um, no, that's a great point. Um, and it's interesting that his his uh, his point is, of course, part one, he says, okay, so I'm going to amass stuff. Now, by the way, this might be an indication that Ecclesiastes is an end of life statement because this, I built my houses, I built all these things. The scriptures give us the story of what Solomon did. Like in First Kings 7, it says it 13 years to build his house and, you know, building the temple and uh, buildings, you know, uh, and I don't want to come to building cities yet because I kind of think maybe we could throw that into the verse 18. You know, your work doesn't really do you much good either uh, would be his idea. But, you know, the sense, too, is to say that um, that that uh, just acquiring things. Um, so he acquires more than anybody ever. And he makes that statement, right? He says more than any person who ever lived in Jerusalem, which which, again, a good testimony. We're talking about Solomon. Uh, more than anybody ever lived, I had more stuff. Um, you know, we have a saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. But Solomon's saying is, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Uh, and that's kind of his idea even about wisdom, because he says, hey, you know, wisdom is like walking with your eyes open. 
Foolishness is like walking with your eyes closed. One is, you know, one is so, and Tom said it, one is so much better than the other. But then he says, but you know what? They both die. Uh, that's kind of his, you know, they both die. Neither of those are the, are going to solve. And by the way, I kind of think in some ways death is the big thing. Um, that's, that's what the book ends with. You know, fear God, keep his commandments because you're going to give an accounting. What's the accounting? It's the when you die conversation. So I think Solomon, some people say Solomon doesn't really talk about life after death. I actually think that's all Solomon's about, but he never says it that way because he's trying to yeah. say, what can I learn about life in life? And the whole point is nothing. There's nothing about life in life that answers itself. The only value of life is what's next. And that, of course, is his concluding statements. But I think his point here is to say that wisdom itself doesn't stop you from dying. Now, now the interesting point about that is that if we put together that Solomon is probably only a teenager whenever he becomes king, and we can kind of gauge that based on when David met Bathsheba, he's probably in his 50s, he doesn't live to, you know, he dies at 70, Solomon's, you know, pretty young when he becomes king, he'll say that, he's probably a teenager, Solomon reigns for 40 years, so when Solomon dies, he's our age, you know, which is young, right? Um, yeah. So he doesn't live long. That's what's interesting. Wisdom didn't give him a long life. Uh, in fact, if anything, it might be the case that the consequences of all this hedonism and knowledge might have brought his life to an earlier death. You know, we could say that that living this way uh, it brought, uh, you know, failed to give him longevity in life. So it's so it's kind of ironic. It accelerated the great uh, undoing of all these things. So again, with hmm. Solomon's life here, and here he's saying, number one, I got everything. Well, so what? That really didn't give me anything. Um, uh, it was futile. It was meaningless. And he'll tell us why later, by the way. He's going to, what's neat about the way Solomon writes, he writes like a PhD candidate where he says, here's my hypothesis. Here's the details. A little further on, he'll tell us the details. Some of those details are, all the things I am asked go to a fool. Now, I don't know if he's calling his son Rehoboam a fool, but the point is he says everything I've taken up, everything I've built is going to be destroyed by somebody else, it's going to be lost by somebody else, and it's going to be meaningless. You know, it has, And that's where he'll, he'll elaborate a little further on why it's meaningless when he talks about things like, you know, it's, you know, uh, death is the big mitigator. And one of the ironies is death takes away all the pleasure of possessions because they're all gone. They're all lost. You know, you think about how hard so my father uh, has a farm, and he has worked so hard to keep that farm. He has put uh, 50 years of labor into that farm. Um, let's say he leaves it to, you know, he's got he's got one great son and two knucklehead kids, let's pretend. I, I'm just saying that. I don't know. My siblings might be watching. So. Um, I'll let them figure out who's the great one. But, um, you know, obviously it's me. Uh, but the point is, even even if he has a son that says, oh, I'm going to do everything I can, that son's never going to appreciate all the work that went into it. That son's probably going to sell it to a condo renovation and, and just walk off. That's how possessions go. You know, all the work I put into something, the next person, even if they're great, they're not going to, that value isn't there. You know, because what he's going to say as he talks about work is the value of work is the is the effort put into it. So ironically... My work can never be valued by anybody else. So that's the nature of these things. So everything I acquire, everything I work to acquire has no value uh, to anybody else because they didn't put the work in to get it. So it's utterly meaningless. I do think verses 12 through uh, 17 are kind of a rehash of the whole 
I'm getting more wisdom. And by the way, I think he's getting wisdom in these answers. The irony is wisdom is the thing he starts with. He says, that's not that great. But every step he takes makes him a little smarter. Well, hedonism is not, not it. That makes him a little wiser. Um, possessions aren't it. That makes him a little wiser. And so he's thinking, you know, I'd have a better life if I walked wise. That's Tom's comment. You know, wisdom is better. But in the end, it's not going to prolong my life. And I just think that's such a neat point to consider. Hey, Brian, I think that was spoken like a true knucklehead. Uh, <laughs> so, you, so I'm not the one that's the that's yeah, the wise yeah. one. I'm one of the two knuckleheads. I know if we took that. a vote, the vote would agree with you. So, Yeah, I was going to say, you can tell yourself that all day long, but that's okay. Uh, 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 anyways, you know, you know, you know, you you bring up a point about the book as a whole. You know, you know, you know, we talk about this being written later in Solomon's life, possibly. You know, we we may know of circumstances where you have somebody the way they've lived their life, they realize that with everything they've done, that they are a failure. And and they tell their son or whoever it is, you know what? Don't be like me. Don't be, I mean, so you could look at it this way. You know, Solomon knows what he had. He knows what he has. He knows that, he knows that, I, I believe he knew he made a wreck of his life. I mean, I mean, uh, I, and, and, and so that's why you can see that as, as in the, and of course we make the point, we hope that this is at the end of his life and that he repented and it's just not recorded, you know, but, but that's, that's between him and God. But, but the truth is, uh, but the truth is, is we, we see that all the time, you know, don't do like I've done, you know, uh, think of the gang member, you know, the gang member who he's, he's, He's a criminal, a career gang member in his life, and he has a child. And he will do anything that he can to keep his child out of that lifestyle because he knows what it is. And and, and that's the blessing of the book of, of, of Ecclesiastes, uh, the pursuit of the meaning of life. And if all there is is this life, it's meaningless. What's kind of neat about that? Die, and, and, and it's a, you know, you made the point, Solomon's very clear here. Who knows, who knows how the next person is going to handle it? Maybe he will take it to the next step and make it better. But who knows whether or not he's going to sell it, sell the land, you know, for condos and, and, and then go spend it on a Corvette and wreck it two weeks later. You know? Yeah, that does sound uh, sound like the way I'd go. What's kind of neat about what you're saying, Tom? Uh, to again, to think of it, think of Solomon. What if Solomon is a repentant man? A repentant man. You know, the Book of Proverbs one through nine is you know him giving his son advice. Yeah. Ironically, a lot of that advice is things right. Solomon, the scriptures say, didn't do. You know, he didn't marry wisely. He you know pursued the wrong women. Women were his downfall. You know, yes. women were the thing you know, the scriptures point to as as being the thing that led him astray. Of course. I have to I have to believe it was hubris, you know, too, the idea of, well, I'm too smart to fail. But, you know, he's telling his son not to do the things that he did. I think that testifies potentially to what it might be, uh, you know, and again, it's a testimony or an evidence, but not a proof that maybe this is a man who's looking back at life with a lot of regret. Yeah. Yeah. Back to you, John. I, I hadn't thought about. Well, thank you, Tom. I hadn't thought about. um Solomon's age as he got older, but that's a very interesting. Point. He only served for he only reigned for forty years, so if he came to the throne early, let's say as late as as twenty, 
That means he, he only reigned till he was 60. So if yeah. we open a window from 55 to 65, you know, 15 to 25, that's not very old at all. And it's almost certainly not, uh, he, like I said, he's almost certainly younger because, you know, when we when we categorize David having lived 70 years and the time frame from David, you know, until he becomes king, you know, he's not till his 30s and, you know, moving up until meeting Bathsheba is almost certainly sometime after 50 um, that the Bathsheba incident takes place. That puts Solomon's potential age as having to be less than 20 years, um, you know, years old when he becomes king. So. Well, okay, so David reigned for 40 years, and he died at 70. Okay, right. so that means he came to the throne right around the age, like you were saying, of 30 years old. Yeah, so David is kind of like, it'll talk about David being king over over Judah and then over Israel. It kind of differentiates, because it takes him like, what, seven years to to bring the kingdom together. So, you know, so he's 37 then when he, you know, when he brings the kingdoms together, um, and we, we kind of parse out the next uh, years. Um, I can't remember exactly how I've, I've worked this out before, but, uh, you know, trying to parse this out, you know, the, these events with Bathsheba aren't till, you know, especially also we're getting a sense of the age of his sons when they rebel and, and likewise. Yeah. Well, he, okay. So when he first became the throne, the, the capital city was in Hebron, if memory serves. And then seven years later, he moved it to Jerusalem. And so then that that's what that's what you're talking about went over part and then over all, and so you're right. I mean, thirty thirty seven years old, and then finally Bathsheba. Let's say Bathsheba's story comes along ten years later, forty five. You know, he very well Solomon. Yeah, I see your point. I see why it would suggest that he could be. It could have been teenager yeah. of sorts. You know, and of course Solomon um, wasn't their first child. Solomon was their second child too. So yeah, you know, because their first child died. So. Um, That's true. You know, and who was the third we, child? Do you remember? Um, was it Nathan? Nathan, yeah, yeah. And you I know think what's Luke neat about Nathan hits that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's neat about Nathan is a prophecy in Zechariah that when, whenever the, the you know the Messiah would be crucified, it would be the house of David and the house of Nathan that would mourn. And it's kind of neat because the house of David is the kingly uh, ascent of Joseph the throne and then the house of Dave uh, house of Nathan might imply the biological descent through Mary. So, yeah, exactly. So real quick, let's go ahead and pull this to a close here for just a moment. We'll bring everybody back here. Oh, wrong button. Get this figured out. You know, we've done this a whole lot, but I've, I've spent a while since I've actually live streamed almost probably a good solid year like this. So still very rusty. Anyway, look at verse 16. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. You know, so there's the great takeaway of that. You know, the idea that in all of our workings and everything that we strive to do, do it for the moment. Okay. If you're going to have a garden, have a garden to enjoy it at the moment. If you're going to Paint the Mona Lisa again. You know, do it for the moment because you enjoy doing it. Um, take care doing something with sheer enjoyment because you know that it will be around for a thousand years because it will not. And once you die, it's going to go on to someone else and they'll likely forget it, abuse it, drop it, break it, whatever, sell it. And it's all for nothing if that fundamentally is your goal then therein lies the disappointment. 
All right, so let's go ahead and plan to next week pick up with right around verse 18, 18 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And hopefully next week we'll have Brendan back from his travels. And um, <laughs> Paul may not be back with us next week. He's still got some stuff going on. Uh, not bad stuff either. It's good stuff going on in his life that he needs to take care of. So hopefully we'll see him back here in about three or four more weeks. All right, let's see. Brian, real quick, since we're at 12 before, any final thoughts, comments before we close? No, it's heavy stuff we've been hitting. I appreciate everything everybody said. This has really been um, something for everybody to think about. Yeah, and and we should be thinking about this a lot because that becomes a primary motivator. Tom, any thoughts, comments? Yeah, when you think about the pursuit of the meaning of life, death is the great equalizer. You know, I, I, I've often made observe, observations in sermons uh, you don't, uh, you hardly ever, or you don't see a hearse with a U-Haul attached to the back of it, because you can't take it with you, and that's really the bottom line. So, you know, so, so just remember, uh, you, you, Proverbs, there, there's one ex- yeah. there's one exception. Cora took it with him. Who? Cora. Cora. He Cora's oh, rebellion. Okay. He took oh, all his possessions with him. So okay. maybe the exception okay. is you might be able to take it with you, but you don't want to go there. Yeah. And his okay. his family. Core took himself, his family, his possessions. That yeah. huge, yeah. yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. They all went to the grave, but that's the point. If, yeah. if but, but you don't know the bottom line, bottom line, wrapping all this up, like I said last week, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Right. This is the whole duty of man. If you're curious about who Core is, look up the rebellion of Korah. And you'll see his outcome, the the demise, and why we made a reference to all that. All righty, real quick, here's by way of reminder. We're going to continue our study next Tuesday at, uh, next Thursday, I'm sorry, 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. We're going to continue our study through Ecclesiastes, picking up in chapter 2, there in verse 18. Um, we would encourage you, if you're watching this through our YouTube channel, to be sure to like the video and to subscribe. That way you'll receive future notifications of our live studies. If you are watching this through our Facebook page, then like the page if you would. And um, hopefully you'll receive future notifications that way also. And if you would like to send us an email, do that. Questions at truthfactorlive.com. I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today for our study. And Lord willing, we'll be back here again next Thursday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time for another Truth Factor discussion. Everybody say bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you, Tom. (laughs) We'll see y'all later.